everyone, thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of The Federalist Files. Today we will be covering uh, Federalist number 41. It is titled, The General View of the Powers Conferred by the Constitution, written by James Madison. Topics include, the general sum of the federal government power, means of security only determined by means of danger of attack, Self-preservation, once again, is paramount. Uh, government budget every two years for protection, uh, for the people's protection themselves. So in this one, he generally, there's, there's a lot of quotes that are very noteworthy in this one. I have it marked down as a significant one because of that, because it really does give another view of the scope of government, the federal government, and what the union is supposed to cover in terms of what is their jurisdiction. So first and foremost, he starts off this paper, and I quote, The Constitution proposed by the Convention may be considered under two general points of view. The first relates to the sum or quantity of power which it vests in the government, including the restraints imposed on the states. The second, to particular structure of the government and the distribution of this power among its several branches. So just in a general sense here, this is this is an introductory to what the point of the government is, the sum of its powers, the point of the Constitution is, the sum of its powers, and then also the structure in which those powers are going to be distributed. So next he goes on, and I quote, Under the first view of the subject, two important questions arise, whether any part of the powers transferred to the general government be unnecessary or improper, and two, whether the entire mass of them be dangerous to the portion of jurisdiction left in these several states. Is the aggregate power of the general government greater than ought to be vested in it? This is the first question to answer, end quote. So what he's saying is, okay, so any of these powers, are they considered unnecessary and proper, too many powers to the point of where it is, uh, where it is tyrannical? And is, are these powers going to take away, of the general government or the union, going to take away powers from the several states? Uh, so he goes on because his dissenters, essentially, this is the, this is the, the conception that they have is that the government's going to be taking away powers from the states individually. And he goes on, he, he continues to battle them on this point as Hamilton has before him. The author, he begs the question and I quote, whether any part of the powers transferred to the general government be unnecessary and improper. So that's, that's the question. And then he explains. And I quote, in all cases where power is to be conferred, the point first to be decided is whether such a power be necessary to the public good as the next will be in case of an affirmative decision to guard as effectually as possible against a perversion of the power to the public detriment, end quote. So another way to put this, and this, this is a way that conservatives generally make policy, uh, economists also talk about this. When you put forth a policy, the general thought should be behind the policy and by this quote and by what our founders, what they envisioned was every single time you put forth a policy, does it benefit at least one person while also not taking anything away from somebody else? And that's the, the generic uh, citing here in this in this quote is what he's saying is, okay, so with his powers conferred, this power is given to the government is it does it help the public good and for and and does not have a public detriment such as any any type of welfare policy we have any type of redistribution we have currently 
is, in my view, it is unconstitutional to take from somebody and give it to somebody else. That's not, that's not protection of property and, and, um, and liberty. There's, there's nothing free about you getting confiscatorily taxed to pay for somebody else that's not doing anything that is perfectly fine to work themselves. And I'm sure I get a lot of disagreements about that because there's a lot of socialists out there, especially now in the mainstream, especially people that are my age, my generation. There's a lot of socialists out there that feel as if we should be paying for their medical bills. Other people that are working should be paying for themselves to go to. Like, there's people that don't understand the way that the Affordable Care Act works, that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, is really paid through the private insurer who has to now get increased rates because the person on Obamacare was never paying anything until they suddenly got sick and now they sign up for Obamacare and they get full coverage. So whenever people say, oh, I like Obamacare, I have Obamacare, you, you should just tell them to their face, well, you're welcome because I'm the one paying for your health care. So you're welcome. Uh, to continue here. In summation, in all cases where power is to be considered necessary, it is important to ask if it is beneficial to the public good and this power needs to be limited for the protection of the citizens. So is, is it beneficial for the public good? Does it help one person while also not taking away from another person? Uh, such as things like basic freedoms such as uh, Second Amendment freedoms, First Amendment freedoms. When you go out and you say something... Are you actually, your speech alone, is it actually physically taking something away from somebody? No, most of the time it is not, unless if it is some sort of a character assassination that is untrue. And I think they would call that, uh, I don't remember the exact word for it, but there's, there's libel laws, there's laws as it pertains to that, where if you end up losing your job, defamation, it is a defamation of character. So that, in essence... There is First Amendment rights, but then when your First Amendment starts to begin with people getting things taken away from them, if you go and you you absolutely, and I'm talking about if this is a completely false statement, you make a false statement about somebody, they end up losing their job and it costs them thousands of dollars, it costs their family, their livelihood, and they get a foreclosure on their house because they're unable to pay the bills. Now at that point, that is a defamation of character suit. So essentially, when, when the government goes forward to put forth these these bills uh these new laws to enact them the first thought that they should think does this help people and this isn't about oh does this help one does this help a hundred million people and hurt only a hundred thousand people oh that's okay because you know at least we help a hundred million no we're talking this better have a net good where everybody is helped by this or a lot of people are helped by this and no one is hurt by this that's that's how in general law should be proposed if we are if we are helping one side at the detriment of another, then that is not a fair and just law, in my view, in the founder's view, as the way that they see it and the way that they write it here. Now, Madison, he proceeds to describe the power delegated to the government of the Union for review. So he goes through these six, and then I, I'm pretty sure he continues to uh, go on this rant. I think he goes through one and two this in this paper, and then in the preceding, the next couple papers, He's going to go through three, four, and five, and six. So, Madison, he, he talks about the power that's delegated to the government of the Union is in the federal government. One is security against foreign danger. Two, regulation of the intercourse with foreign nations. Three, maintenance of harmony and proper intercourse among the states. Four, certain miscellaneous objects of general utility. Five, restraint of the, the states from certain injurious acts. Six, 
provisions for giving due efficacy of these powers, end quote. So the, these are supposed to be the powers that are laid out by the union. These are the things that they have. Security against danger and regulation of intercourse with foreign nations. I'm pretty sure that's what he goes through here. I know number one, he definitely does. And I think he hints a little bit at number two, or that may actually be the next paper. So then he goes on, and I quote, The powers falling within the first class are those of declaring war and granting letters of mark, of providing armies and fleets, of regulating and calling forth the militia, of levying and borrowing money, security against foreign danger, is one of the primitive objects of civil society. It is an avowed and essential object of the American Union, end quote. So most importantly, it is the common defense, really. Now, letters of mark, I think that has to do with maritime maritime operations is in the Navy, the naval capacity, uh, providing the armies and fleets, regulating, calling forth the militia. Borrowing money is, is also in relation to security because you need to borrow money to raise troops. So next, uh, the, no, oh, here we go. So these powers are the impetus behind this paper. And like I said, he, he mentions granting letter of Mark. I don't know if it's called Markway or Markor. Uh, declaring war, providing arms and fleets, levying and borrowing money and regulating and calling forth the militia. Now, Madison next, he exudes the need for no restraints on these powers. He states, and I quote, the means of security can only be regulated by the means of and danger of attack. They will, in fact, be ever determined by these rules and by no others. It is in vain to oppose constitutional barriers to the impulse of self-preservation. This is a very, very important quote, and this is an important point that he goes on to make and he explains this and i quote the answer indeed seems to be so obvious and conclusive as scarcely to justify such a discussion in any place with what color or of propriety could the force necessary for defense be limited by those who cannot limit the force of offense if a federal constitution could chain the ambition or set bounds to the exertions of all other nations then indeed might it prudently chain the discretion of its own government and set bounds to the exertions for its own safety end quote so here this is him being a little bit sarcastic what he's saying is as the common defense and, and in a government and a proposed constitution you can never, as one country, be able to, through your policy and your code, be able to limit, unless if you can limit the offensive or you can limit your adversary's power, then you should never put a limit on how big your power and how big your military can get and your power of taxation. Because you are not, you have no idea what the eminent danger is. There is actually no ceiling on it. There is no, there is no parameter to estimate how powerful your adversary could be or your opponent. And unless if you have some sort of constitution that can impose some sort of sanction on the, the other country that is your political opponent, then there is no reason for yourself to stipend, stifle your ability to collect revenue or raise troops or armies. And this is a very important uh, delineation that he makes here. Is he's, he's, just, he's really just saying... If, if that could be done, then yeah, sure, we can have provisions against standing armies, which really is not possible. You can't possibly, through what you have in the United States, through policy that you have, you can ensure that that over in China, they're not going to raise troops. Now, in New Jersey, I mean, in uh, the United States in general, 
I know Mexico doesn't have a huge force. I also know Canada doesn't have a huge force, as, as well as Britain, because they know that the United States has their backs. So when people complain about military spending, the only reason our military spending is so high is because we're actually pay paying and we are fronting the defense bill of every other country, as we are also paying and fronting a lot of medical bills for other countries because we put so much money into creating new pharmaceuticals and, and, new, and new devices as it relates to healthcare. As whereas other countries don't do that, and then they don't appreciate our laws, and they go and they break patents, and they they make generics, and they charge nothing, and we have companies that are investing millions of dollars to make those pharmaceutical drugs. So America really fronts the bill for almost everybody, uh, in almost every single sector of different economies. We really do because we are the most innovative. We do the best job of it. If we weren't around, we, we America actually makes other countries' lives better by just being around because we are able to provide resources at lower prices and we're able to innovate and create new things. So next, next he states, and I quote, The veteran legions of Rome were an overmatch for the undisciplined valor of all other nations and rendered her the mistress of the world. Not the less true is it. That the liberties of Rome proved the final victim to her military triumphs and that the liberties of Europe, as far as they ever existed, have, with few exceptions, been the price of her military establishments. So here, what he's saying, yes, military establishments have been bad because in Rome, as well as in Europe, it has taken the liberties away from the people themselves because they end up being the very last victim of their power because these military establishments get so strong and so large. And then he also goes on, and I don't think I have it here, but he goes on to source and he talks about Great Britain, how their military establishment actually is not too big for the people themselves and the liberty of the people because they have their natural barriers all around them. Great Britain essentially is an island. And they have so many oceans around them that people, those work as natural barriers where they do not have to go and source out an astronomical army, such as some of these other European countries that were directly next to each other. So next he states, and I quote, A standing force therefore is a dangerous at the same time that it may be a necessary provision. On the smallest scale, it has its inconveniences. On an extensive scale, it consequences may be, its consequences may be fatal. On any scale, it is an object of laudable circumspection and a precaution. A wise nation will combine all these considerations, and whilst it does not rashly preclude itself from any resource which may become essential to its safety, will exert all its prudence in diminishing both the necessity and the danger of resorting to one which may be inauspicious to its liberties." End quote. So if you're resorting to a very large standing military, it is going to be inauspicious to your liberties. But he said it's it's a necessary evil, and this is something that's been remarked by Alexander Hamilton as well. He says the exact same thing. This is a necessary evil. Unfortunately, we need to have some sort of standing army or military because we cannot see the forces or the eminent forces that are... We can't really predict the future. We can't predict what our dangers are and what jeopardizes our national security, which is considered paramount because it's the self-preservation. It is the existence of the United States. So next, 
Madison notes the unfortunate necessity of standing armies as dangerous but fully necessary, and he concludes, and I quote, The clearest marks of this prudence are stamped on the proposed constitution, the Union itself, which it cements and secures, destroys every pretext for a military establishment which could be dangerous. America, united with a handful of troops or without a single soldier, exhibits a more forbidding posture to foreign ambition than America disunited with a hundred thousand veterans ready for combat, end quote. So what he's saying here is America is much more powerful and stronger united, even if they do not have a single soldier comparatively to America disunited in separate confederacies with 100,000 veterans ready for combat. And the, and the point of this is because when you go and attack New Jersey, New Jersey's on their own. It's a smaller fighting force. You're just going to be fighting New Jersey. There's almost so much, only so much money. There's a limited amount of money that is able to uh, levy the troops or to raise the troops. Now, if you're fighting the entire United States and you attack you attack New Jersey, then now the entire you you attacked the United States of America. You attacked all 13 of the states at the, at this time. And now all these states individually will put their money together, which is exorbitant amounts uh, of money comparatively to just New Jersey themselves in taxation. Maybe they can they could probably raise, let's say, ten times more money, and they have much more of a voluminous population to pick from because they have the entire thirteen states of people to pick from as their soldiers to go fight you on that front. So that's real, and you can mobilize easier. And then there's military operations because it's much more organized because there's a federal government in place and a union in place. So next he goes on, and I quote: "The distance of the United States from the powerful nations." of the world gives them the same happy security a dangerous establishment but never be necessary or plausible as long as they continue a united people but let it never for a moment be forgotten that they are indebted for this advantage to the union alone the moment of its dissolution will be the date of a new order of things end quote so he's just he's just repeating again once again the the day the moment of dissolution will be a whole new order of things it will lead to the the taking over or the commandeering of america um because union is essential in this point because then your individual is just fighting states and it'll be easier for for any military power especially european military power to take over the united states but then interestingly enough he also talks about how the distance from the united states from other powerful nations such as great britain and uh, spain and other european countries it's such a far distance that that naturally gives them a protective barrier in a border. And this is something that I think he says you should thank God about or something they're indebted for this advantage to the union alone. So then he explains that the people, as long as they stand united, shall be the ultimate check upon a tyrannical military establishment. Madison also cites the provision that limits standing armies through revenue, uh, which may only be appropriated through the legislature every two years. Now, he goes on, and this is something that he just says, a, ge a very general phrase here, a, a general statement about uh, liberty-loving Americans. He states, and I quote, Every man who loves peace, every man who loves his country, every man who loves liberty, ought to have it ever before his eyes, that he may cherish in his heart a due attachment to the union of America, and be able to set a due value on the means of preserving it. End quote. So that's just the generic statement that he's making, though, about, about the men of America. Then he alludes to the disparities of the Constitution in comparison uh, to the British Constitution, explaining military budgets are voted on every year, whereas in the Constitution it's every two years. Madison alludes to the conflation... 
the conflating of the argument because British Parliament members hold seven-year terms. So just to explain this, he gives a little background. You got Great Britain, uh, the British par with their British par Parliament. Every year they're supposed to vote on a military budget in Great Britain, whereas in the United States, the proposed constitution, it's every single two years. Right now, currently, as it's going on uh, in modern times, we are, we are pretty much voting on a new military budget every single year. We're not even doing every two years. So they're doing every single two years, and people are pointing to it. The dissenters are saying, well, I like Great Britain's system more. They do it every year. We should do it every single year. And then he goes on to explain and debunk why that's a bad idea. And he also can, he also explains how the British Constitution, it's hard for you to even establish a comparison between the British Constitution and the United States proposed Constitution because the British Parliament, they, they hold seven-year terms. And they're also indebted much more to the king, whereas... The constituency in the United States is to be of the people themselves. So he goes on, he states, and I quote, The British Constitution fixes no limit whatever to the discretion of the legislature and that the American ties down the legislature to two years as the longest admissible term. Had the argument from the British example been truly stated, it would have stood thus, the term for which supplies may be appropriated to the army establishment Though lim unlimited by the British Constitution, has nevertheless in practice been limited by parliamentary discretion to a single year. End quote. So, he's just explaining it. And then he's also talking about it seems like it's unlimited through the British Constitution. But then he goes on. He states, and I quote, Now, if in Great Britain, where the House of Commons is elected for seven years, where so great a proportion of the members are elected by so small a proportion of the people, where the electors are so corrupted by the representatives, and the representatives so corrupted by the crown, the representative body can possess a power to make appropriations to the army for an indefinite term, without desiring or without daring to extend the term beyond a single year, ought not suspicion herself to blush, in pretending that the representatives of the United States elected freely by the whole body of the people, every second year cannot be safely entrusted, end quote. So he, he just rips them apart. The House of Commons, the, the their version of the legislative branch over in Great Britain, they hold these seven-year terms, and that's not really, that's, that's part of the issue to begin with, because then they feel very comfortable in passing legislation for more and more of a military budget when they have a seven-year term. It doesn't even really matter to them, whereas in the United States, the House of Representatives, they hold the purse, they put out the military spending they write that legislation, they get two-year terms. So they're really indebted to the people. They actually have to worry to their constituency. Another thing is, in Great Britain, a very small population is actually in charge. It was the, I guess it was almost like an aristocracy system, where a very, very small portion of the people, the very, I guess, I guess you would call them the rich and connected few, were the ones that were highly, much more represented by the members in the House of Commons at that time. And then you had a very small proportion of the people that were poor or just middle class, and they were represented by a minority in their Congress. And on top of that, the electors and the representatives were corrupted by the crown, meaning the monarch. Uh, so, And they were much less representative of the people the whole body of the people at large, whereas in the United States of America, these these House of Rep members were for so many thousands of citizens. It wasn't, oh, in this state, it's for 120,000 citizens, you get one rep. And then in this state, it's for every single 500,000 citizens, you get one rep. It is across the board consensus the same federally for every single state. There's not states that get certain amount of rep members. They don't have, they all have the same proportionality 
for how many citizens to one House of Rep member. And that's really what he's alluding to here. So next on. He states, and I quote, Nothing short of a constitution fully adequate to the national defense and the preservation of the Union can save America from as many standing armies as it may be split into states or confederacies and form such a progressive augmentation of these establishments in each as will render them as burdensome to the properties and ominous to the liberties of the people as any establishment that can become necessary under a united and efficient government must be tolerable to the former and safe to the latter. End quote. So, in this one, what he's saying is, so if we don't have a union, we're going to have individual states. They're all going to have their own standing armies, standing militaries, and that's going to be ominous to the liberties of the people because they're going to get larger and larger when there's more acquisitions. Say New Jersey goes on to fight New York. New York beats New Jersey. They now acquire New Jersey. They build a a stronger and more robust standing military. Uh, whereas with a union military, you just have your set union military and that's it. It's not going to continue to get larger and larger because it's not acquiring other states. It is of all the states of the people themselves. And it is really, I guess you would, they are loyal to the United States of America. They're also loyal in a way to certain government officials, but the government officials are really loyal to the people themselves because this is once again a self-government structure. So they would be very, they would be much less likely to go against the people of America, the military, a union military. And it would also, it would incur an extreme cost on the people, be very burdensome on the people's uh, financial costs if every single individual state had to have its own standing military all the time. Next, Madison, he details the need for a navy. He states, and I quote, It must indeed be numbered among the greatest blessings of America, that as her union will be the only source of her maritime strength, so this will be a principal source of her security against danger from abroad, end quote. So this is another thing that's very important. They want a union navy that will work to repel foreign enterprises and inhabitants of our Atlantic frontier. Are deep, uh, they're deeply interested with this provision. Madison State. So all of these states that are on the border, New Jersey, New York, anything that has anything to do with the Atlantic border, they were very interested in this provision. They wanted this this Navy because they could sleep nicely at night, not having to worry about an attempted acquisition from a European country. So he goes on, and I quote, In the present condition of America, the states more immediately exposed to these calamities have nothing to hope from the phantom of a general government which now exists. And if their single resources were equal to the task of fortifying themselves against the danger, the object to be protected would be almost consumed by the means of protecting them. End quote. So, if this was up to the individual states, if this was up to New Jersey, if this was up to North, South Carolina, if it was up to New York to build their own state military or their own state navy to protect their border, their sea border, then he's saying it would run the people uh, destitute. He's saying, if the single resources were equal to ta the task of fortifying themselves against the danger, the object to be protected would be almost consumed by the means of protecting them. So the object protected is in the people themselves and the, and the state themselves. It would be taken up, it would be consumed by the means as in it would be consumed, all of their money would be taken away from them just to be able to fund a military or fund a navy to protect their, their, sea, their sea border. And that's what he's pointing out is this This is a highly important because these people that lived in these states, they wanted security. And then as well, when it came to trading, whether it was international commerce 
or even if it was between the states in certain rivers that they would sail from one place to another with goods, it was important to have a naval, uh, to have a navy, and then on top of that, you can also use that navy to collect some sort of revenues on imports and exports. Now, next, he goes into the power of borrowing money and levying taxes is the next topic, which has drawn hasty dissent. So he talks about his dissenters here. This is it has been urged and echoed that the power. And he quotes here, to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, amounts to an unlimited commission to exercise every power which may be alleged to be necessary for the common defense or general welfare. No stronger proof could be given of the distress under which these writers labor for objections than their stooping to such a misconstruction, end quote. So what he's saying here is is the the provision that's calling for the lay, the collective taxes, duties, imposts, excises to pay for the debts and provide for the common defense of the general welfare of the United States. That provision in and of itself, people are misconceiving purposely because they're worried about an unlimited use of this of this power from the federal government. So Madison contends that this is a misconstruction and there is no power cited in the Constitution that calls for, and he quotes, a power to destroy the freedom of the press, the trial by jury, or even to regulate the course of dissents or the forms of conveyances must be very singularly expressed by the terms to raise money for the general welfare, end quote. So when he says raise money for the general welfare or all of the, this provision that was cited before, it also, this provision, and this is what people are worried about, this provision has nothing to do with the power to destroy the freedom of press, the power to destroy the trial by jury, or to regulate the course of dissents, or the course of dissents is in uh, talking, I guess, the course of dissents going back and forth, or the forms of conveyances, or rather just the First Amendment, really, uh, in express terms, just saying to raise money for the general welfare does not mean an abolishment of the First Amendment. That's essentially, and, and trial by jury. So that's what he's saying there. Now, Madison, he explains the reason for the wording of the provision in relation to taxation. He states, and I quote, Nothing is more natural nor common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by a recital of particulars, end quote. So this is very, very important. The reason that the founders used such general phrases is that they just wanted this to be a general uh, outline of what the powers of the federal government were going to be, and then to get into more specifics, you would codify law through the legislative branch, but they didn't want to leave anything, they didn't want to leave uh, federal government power unanswered or ambiguous, where you're not, you don't really understand, they wanted to be very generic and general in their phrasing, and then the people themselves would be easily able to discern and pick and choose what they want as law. And, and that's why it's so general. And then and you want to explain and qual qualify it by recital of particulars. So that's the people themselves getting much more uh, intricate in the way in which they write law. So in summation, it is better to use general mission statement, a general mission statement rather than a particular that does not represent the general one like the dissenters did. And, and he explains like the dissenters did. He talks about the Articles of Confederation. I don't know if it's here. Yeah, he does here. So he states, and I quote, The objection here is the more extraordinary as it appears that the language used by the convention is a copy from the Articles of Confederation. The objects of the Union among the states, as described in the Article 3, are, and I quote, their, their common defense, security of their liberties, and mutual and general welfare, end quote. The terms of Article 8, are still more identical, and I quote, 
all charges of war and all other expenses that shall be incurred from the, for the common defense or general welfare and allowed by the United States in Congress shall be defrayed out of a common treasury, end quote. So the fear, and he, and the very first one is of the Union, and the very second quote is of the Articles of Confederation, which is more important. So the Articles, what he's saying is the Articles of Confederation is actually laying out more power to the federal government for taxation and, and the common treasury itself, whereas the Union, the proposed Constitution, is actually giving less power to the government. And that's why he was, he's kind, I mean, he's really just perplexed that this is their they're characterizing the Constitution as tyrannical, whereas the governing document that's currently in place in the Articles of Confederation actually gives more power and appropriates more funds to the federal government than the proposed Constitution does. And just to end here, the fear is that it can easily be used to confound or mislead, like in this scenario, Madison notes, this phraseology is also somewhat similar to provisions found in the Articles of Confederation. This general phrasing will be seen and explained in later papers. So what he's saying is Articles of Confederation, the way they phrase it is very similar to the uh, proposed Constitution. The proposed Constitution, they use kind of shorter, more broad sense of terms, I guess. And, but it seems like because and allowed by the United States Congress, that that little part itself in the Articles of Confederation, to me, seems like a, an additional power comparatively to um, to the Constitution, where the Constitution... It says allowed by, so so now the Articles of Confederation can pretty much pull and incur any type of money as long as it's allowed by the United States and Congress, whereas the, the proposed Constitution doesn't have that same. The, the, the proposed Constitution has it as their common defense, securities of their liberties, and mutual and general welfare. And that's... Um, that gives it at least a proposed scope of, okay, so this is this is what the, the federal government can actually fund and appropriate funds for not as they as they please which in the articles of confederation the provision where it says and allowed by the united states and congress kind of just sounds like okay whatever the united states congress wants to spend on if they vote on it and it's okay then yeah they can they can spend money on that whereas the constitution is much more specific and it says hey okay so anything that has to do with any of these things any of these few um any of these few topics those can only be spent on. Those are the only things that you can appropriate funds for. So that concludes this one. I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. I actually like this paper. Uh, it's got some really deep-rooted principles about the Constitution, just the thoughts of our founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution. So next, what we're going to have is we're going to have number 42, the powers conferred by the Constitution further considered. Uh, they're going to go deeper into this. And I think the next couple papers are going to be these these numbers, how I stated those those first six. I think this will be the next one will probably be number three, which I don't remember if I could find it here, which one it is. Number three, maintenance of harmony and proper intercourse among the states. That'll probably be the next one. I don't know. I think he goes into three and four and then he goes into five and six, but I'm not exactly sure. So I greatly appreciate everyone for tuning in. Please make sure you watch the, uh, any, if you want to be up to date on your current news, listen to some of my current event podcasts, I go deep in with some deep dives of information. I leave all of the current events in the show notes and description so you can click on them and use them to debate your liberal friends. So that's it there. I will see everyone on Friday. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, take care.